podcast is brought to you by the Center for Law and Society at the University of Cape Town. The following recording is from the second Biana Law and Society in Africa conference held in Cairo in April 2019. The conference was jointly hosted by CLS and the Law and Society Research Unit at the American University in Cairo. The section was entitled We Are Nest for Law and Society in Africa and the Middle East, a conversation with early career scholars. To find out more about the conference and the work of CLS, please visit our website at www.cls.uct.ac.za. Find us on social media at CLS UCT or drop us an email at pbl-cls at uct.ac.za. Please do get in touch should you have any ideas for further projects and collaborations. And in the meantime, happy listening. Welcome to the second their knowledge about what is the state 
of the field of law and society from their perspective as they think about their own projects, what's the moment that they are in? There's a moment all of us are in in our research. It could be a post-revolutionary moment in Egypt. It could be a moment where uh, law is backsliding into populism in other parts of the world. It could be a moment where uh, crimes of gender are taken maybe more seriously or less seriously. It could be uh, any number of moments that each mark how these scholars have uh, engaged with the field of law and society. Uh, and I'm asking, and what we're going to do is ask them to zoom out, to give their thoughts on the contemporary political moment and legal moment and social moment in their context, but also to help all of us. As Kelly had said earlier, um, this is a different kind of panel. Um, the way the organizers of the conference have decided to structure it is that it would be a conversation just between the four of them, so there won't be any interaction with the audience. Okay, thank you. So now we have our fifth panelist. Thank you, Havaya. Um, so I'll introduce the, the panelists in a moment. So again, what I've, at, what I've asked the panelists to do, what the organizers have asked the panelists to do, is have a conversation with one another. Um, this doesn't preclude all of you from engaging in the conversation later on during the conference, but we wanted to keep it within the panelists for now to discuss, uh, to zoom out from their own projects and help the rest of us think about what does this mean for the state of law in the places that we care about law, um, based on the places that they um, study and think about the power or the lack of power of law. So with that, let me introduce the panelists. Heba on my far left is coming from the uh, University of Illinois, also as a PhD student in her, I think, fourth year. Uh, then we have Smith coming from the uh, University of Cardiff in Wales in the UK. Uh, in, I think, your third year of the PhD. First year, first year of the PhD program. Jamila Omar coming from the University of Cape Town as a senior lecturer in the Department of Public Law. Um, also about to finish her PhD. Uh, we have Wame on my right, who is also about to finish his PhD at University of Cape Town. Ruth Nakura, who's also finishing her um, PhD at the University of Finished. Yeah, so finished in a matter of days. Um, so Dr. Ruth on my on my far right. Okay, so with that said, let me maybe start with the first question, which is uh, building on what I mentioned earlier in terms of what is this moment that we are in? For some of us, it's a moment where um, there's backsliding into populism in certain countries, where there's a turn away from uh, progressive activism, uh, maybe a turn towards uh, other kinds of, of activism. Do you see that in your particular context? Or what is the moment that bothers you uh, or that concerns you that led to uh, the research that you've been doing? Help us understand this moment. And I'll leave it open to whoever wants to start. Thank you, Mark. Uh, that's a very difficult question to answer. Um, and I think in part because, in my view, there is no real answer to that. There's no one single moment, um, <clears throat> even, even across, you know, even within a country, even within one society of a country, even within um, a community of scholars, within a society, uh, within a country. There, there is no one single moment. It really depends on who you ask. If you were to ask um, a man compared to a woman, you might get a very different answer about what moment you're in. If you were to ask uh, someone who has citizenship versus someone who doesn't have citizenship um, in that jurisdiction, you'll get a very different answer. If you ask a child uh, compared to an adult, you'll, you'll get a different answer. If you ask someone who lives in a rural area or in an urban area, uh, there's no single moment that um, that I, as a South African, can speak on behalf of every other South African and say this is a, a uniquely South African moment. There are many moments, um, and I think that the, the other thing about moments is that 
you know, we might be we might be keen to think of this moment as being unique, a unique moment in time, um, and it might be unique to those of us living it at the moment. But it's it might be to uh, older people, um, you know, no different to the moments that they lived, because everything uh, works in cycles and may have come out of a certain period of experiencing certain things and moving into a period where there's pushback. Um, but that has happened before. Um, we've been here before and nothing has really changed. Um, the real interesting question for us is, if nothing has changed, uh, if we've been here before, then what are the things that we are seeing? Um, what are the things that should be warning us? What are the things that, um, that must take us forward into, into new work um, and new advances. Uh, thank you. And uh, I'd like to start from where uh, Jaida left us. And, uh, she told us about uh, the fact that she sees that there's a lot of similarities between what is happening now and probably what has happened before. And for me, um, I'm seeing a resurgence a resided moment, and uh, the resurgence that I'm seeing in my context, that is the Kenyan context, is uh, the resurgence of a culture of resistance, uh, resistance by groups that have been left behind, groups that have been left behind in terms of who the law speaks to, who the law works for, and we are seeing a lot of narratives being generated at the grassroots level by people who uh, Defied to yesterday as the everyday person within the society, the common person within the society. But these narratives have left some other people behind. And uh, this, this group of other people, uh, us, the academia, we've, left, we've been left to catch up with these transformations. And uh, for me, this is a moment where we need to reevaluate ourselves as uh, people who consider themselves to be in the academia, to people who consider themselves to be. Uh, intellectuals to be in touch with the realities, to be in touch with the everydayness uh, within the society. So I think for me this is a moment of re the resistance and uh, it is a moment for us to, to be part of that resistance, to be part of that uh, narrative. When you first asked the question, the first thing that came to my mind is that this is such an uncertain uncertain moment. It's a moment of uncertainty and perhaps also a moment of precarity. And not precarity in the economic sense or in the individual sense, but precarity in the global sense in that it's precarious times that are unknown, ununderstandable, very porous. And in response to my colleagues here, Jamila and Smith, I actually, like this is, this is one of the things that drive me to answer the question of is it history repeating them itself? And I really, I don't think it is. I think we are in very unique times. And not because I don't believe in history, I, I really truly believe in history and my research is very historical. But I really think there is something unique about the times we're in now, where the world is so porous, where the problems are affecting each side of the world in very different ways, where problems have become more or less across the globe and not just necessarily the problem of one side of the world and then the advantages of the other side. I, th I think there is something unique about the times we're in, but even ideologically and in terms of a way forward, I feel that there is more uncertainty and less um, willingness to sign up for ideological solutions and uh, for a, a clear way forward. And that really scares me at times because I believe in resistance and I believe in change and that is what drives my both my practice and my research. But I, I don't know if it's because we live in these times that I think it's, it's a more complicated period, whereas when you read history it sounds so straightforward and everything is categorized and there is a term to describe everything and it seems like it makes perfect sense, but if we lived through it it might have been different. Um, but it seems to me like there isn't an easy solution to the global crises that have also national um, 
reflections and the national crises that have global reflections. I, I really like even thinking what do I want to see happen in Egypt, it's not that easy because every solution that I have has consequences uh, and things are moving so fast and, and this is scary as well. We don't, we don't live in an era where things take you know, a few decades to materialize. It seems that things materialize so fast with social media and, and, and the new communications technologies. So, and that's not pessimism. I'm still very optimistic. I'm just confused, I guess. So let me um, summarize what I think I'm hearing because there's already a debate that's occurring just to my left, let alone, and I want to get to the two of you in a moment. But I hear some people saying, look, we're in a period of uncertainty. We're in a period of resistance in some places, um, but we're, we've also been through this before. In all of the contexts in which we work and study and care about and think about the law, there has been historically uncertainty, there has been historically uh, resistance, but at the same time, maybe the solutions are different from now um, compared to solutions in the past. Another thing I've heard is um, reality is far more messy uh, and complicated than the easy histories that we discuss and the easy histories that we read that seem linear and logical, uh, especially when we introduce the law that seems uh, stable. But reality is far more messy. So let me turn to this side and see if you can help us resolve this uh, uh, maybe impasse or uh, conflict in the discussion around what is new and what is not new, what's the moment that, you're, that you see yourselves in, uh, and what do you see as uh, the way forward, the challenges of the moment that you're in, and what do you maybe see as the way forward? Um, thank you very much, Mark. Um, I feel like you set us up for an impossible task. Um, but picking back off what Smith said and what Jamila said is, I think that we are in an age of disruptors, of disruptiveness. And what, what that does, or what that has done, is that it has shattered the notions of binaries. Oftentimes, solutions to problems are thought of as one thing or the other. So you're either um, capitalist or um, uh, communist. You're either liberal or communitarian and that has framed the discourse. And we are finding that people's realities are not that binary. And so what that is doing is that it is creating a wider gap between the law on paper and people's lived realities. And I think that the real job for us as scholars is to be reflective and reflexive in the sense that you take note of the fact that it isn't enough to simply do gap studies and say, oh, this is what the law says. And this is, what's the problem with implementation? There is, there is a resurgence in the fact that people are living their lives outside of the law. And the real job for us is to go into those spaces and understand what is going on. Like you said yesterday, be more descriptive. And when you understand how people frame their reality, that can help us in reframing what we think the law should be. Because the law should be a tool for us not the other way around. And so, it, for me, it, it then ties into issues of power. Because the question then is, who is crafting the law? What's the agenda behind the crafting of the law? What's the end goal? Whose, whose ends are being met by the law? And so, I think that invites us to start discussions around power, around the fact that law is actually invested in power. And so when we can, like in your words, take off the clock of power, we can then begin to understand what the agendas are and unpack those agendas. Yeah, um, so just to say, to agree with Jamila, and maybe to remind us of something Smith said, the, about the, what is the role of academics, social legal academics in this moment, whatever the moment is. For me, it feels like there was some, I call it a moment of inertia. So um, it's that, I think it's a concept in physics where you're jumped forward by the car when you hit something and then you move right back. So it's, it's 
seen as though there was a time when in my discipline I work in gender-based violence and violence against women. There was a time it felt there's a lot of progress that has been made and almost like a, a, a very, a very um, unexpected forward movement happened. But then after a while, we just moved right back. And it feels like there's a lot of clawback um, and almost moving right back to where we were. And it, it, it could either be that it's the, the cyclical movement of history repeating itself or um, not learning from lessons that others who've gone before us have, learned, have, have already gone through. Whatever the, the reason is, um, my concern is that we seem not to be able to break the cycle. Of, and, and yet there's a lot of work that's being done. So people are busy. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of lawyers, a lot of social legal researchers. The way that I think about the law now is very different from the way that I thought about it in law school. There's a lot more lawyers, even in my own spaces, who are more sociological, people who are doing more empirical work, even as lawyers, and stepping out of the legal bubble. But it seems as though there's no change. So this question of um, what is the role of academics is, in my field, we've ended up in a space of asking the question, so what works? It seemed as though we knew what works, but did we really know what works? Because maybe we didn't, maybe we missed something. Um, and so this question of, so what works? And it's almost as if we're now working in reverse. There was a time when academics were speaking back theoretically to societies about what the law should be, what the law is. And now it's a space where communities are speaking back to the law and saying, no, but that's irrelevant, it doesn't work, it's not real. And, and that's for me a very valuable moment to challenge systems that we've almost accepted without question in the past, um, to just say, if it doesn't work, then it doesn't work for communities. If, if, if it doesn't work, it's not the community that will change, it's the law that needs to change. I mean, you know, just uh, a lot of this resonates, and I don't think I agree or disagree, or rather, I don't disagree strongly with, with anything that's been said. Um, I mean, you know, just on this issue of, of, of the issues being cyclical, I think just because my view is that we've seen these issues before, and I think people, for example, living um, in the time leading up to, say, World War II, just, just as a random example, um, would have experienced some of the same some of the same issues that, that we see now with this, the rising populism, authoritarian governments, uh, increased securitization, uh, a reluctance to get involved in, in civil issues or fear of reprisals. All of those issues uh, are not new to us. There are differences, of course, um, but, but the issues are not new. But just because the issues are not new doesn't make it easy. There's no easy solution we can pluck out of history and say if we just did this one thing we would solve all our problems. Um, I think quite the opposite. I think these are issues that are never going to be solved. Um, and I don't mean that in a cynical um, or, or negative way. Um, I actually mean it quite the opposite. There's always going to be work to be done. There's, there's always work for us um, as academics. Our job is to record what's happening in the present, to analyze the trends from the past to the present and to make recommendations for the future that we hope will um, will bear fruit. But, but it should always be with the understanding that we're not going to succeed because law, policy, implementation, um, all of those things that, that, that form the framework for the work that we do are created by people. And people, as you say, this framework, um, are imperfect, and so everything we do is going to be imperfect. Um, so our, our role here is really to work within that imperfection, uh, sometimes try not to not to be too blinkered. I mean, I know, for example, Dee, we often have those weeks where we're so stuck in what's happening in South Africa that by the end of the week, we feel like there's no hope, this is the worst place in the world to live in, um, we really should move anywhere else. And all it takes is reading the news of um, another country or visiting another country um, to remind you that actually, you know, we don't have it so bad in some, in some instances. Um, and so we also need to not get stuck in our individual moments so much 
that we can't see outside of that box. Then driving to get the 10,000 feet that you want us to do. I just wanted to comment on one thing you said, the fact that we're so busy, and I totally agree, but I think this is also part and parcel of the precarity we're in, because we're so busy with case by case solving the consequences of the system that we're in, to the extent that we don't have the time to question the entire system or to fight it. And, and this is one of the things I struggle with, because you cannot say, I'm not going to help these particular cases, I'm not going to work on solving housing issues or eviction issues or things like that, absolutely not. But when we go case by case, we get so drained and, and our time and energy is absolutely taking up, taken up by this being busy to the extent that we don't really have time to stop the machine that's producing all of these things or to even think about how we return to that cycle of history. And I, I, again, I, I, I know the issues are known and that there is something cyclical about what's happening, but I think the fact that we have this history of rising popul populism in a particular context and now we have populism again, I think that in its own right is very unique. The fact that we have all read about Mussolini, we know everything leading up to World War II, we know everything from Egypt's history, we, we know that what happened in the past 100 years and still we're at this moment again and, and thinking that this is a solution and, and people think that populism is a good way forward, it's protective, it's secure, sure, more other people have studied why, why people sign up for populism these days, but that, that is in its own right very, um, it's, it's calling for questioning these, these ideas and concepts that we have of why does this happen, why does it come back again? Why is this cycle creating itself at this moment again? Uh, and again, not saying that we will not escape it again, hopefully we will, but I think there's something unique that we're back at the same point, or it's, it's similar, I wouldn't call it the same point, but. I think, tagging off of your point, I think one of the things that is required of us in trying to understand the rise of populism is to, and I'm, I'm sorry I keep coming back to this point of power, I think it's a pushback. And, and, and so when you have politicians that can tap into that, into the ether, into that essence that is the undercurrent, because a lot of the populist regimes have come off the back of democratic processes. So they haven't inherently been authoritarian. They, they have the backing of the people in a sense. And so it, it would seem that the rise of populism is in itself a pushback, uh, an attempt to reclaim power and to decide the narrative that is wanted. And I think off the back of that, it is because we have created this false paradigm or false understanding of the nature of resources, frame them as finite. And so it is either you have it or I have it. And I think the real job is in breaking those finite definitions of what is. And then when we do that shattering, then we can then begin to rethink new ways of approaching the problem. But as long as we, we still think within those binaries, within those formed ways of knowing, we will, we will keep doing that back and forth of it's either you or me. It's either I have it or you don't have it. And I think that's the real job for us to do. How we do it is then the question. I, I don't have the answers. I think, first of all, we need to understand what is going on, properly understand it, and not assume that we know what is going on. Understand it, and then when you understand the problem, you can begin to hazard some sort of a guess or some sort of analysis that can lead you to a solution. But I think that's the first task. So I'm hearing the, the panelists, uh, I, I'm sensing a lot of frustration around, around what is the current moment, how do we define the current moment, and some people, I think some of that frustration comes from trying to understand where, and Wami took us there, where power resides. And yesterday I was having a conversation with Ruth, with Ruth, and she said, you know, law is cloaked in power. Law is cloaked in power. Law is hidden beneath 
power. And so I want to ask maybe you, you, Ruth, if you can start, and other panelists to chime in um, to add to this. Help us understand what is under this cloak. What does law look like from your perspective? If law is indeed cloaked by power, uh, what does it look like if we remove this cloak? What do we see? So I, I want to start by saying, when I get frustrated, which I do get a lot, um, I just try and remember that and maybe this is being simplistic, but it is not the, the moments that we are in, the, the context that Africa is sitting at right now didn't happen by accident, right? It is not, it, is, it was not an unintentional set of facts that led us to where we are today. There is some very um, deliberate and intentional scheming um, that has produced the moments that we are in today. So, I really shy away from feeling or from saying that, you know, this is too intractable to solve. So I would, for example, disagree with Jamila's idea that we will never find a solution because we are, as human beings, we are imperfect. And it, is, and it is true that we are imperfect, but we are imperfect in different ways. So power, for example, resides and, and um, expresses itself, manifests itself in very different but noble ways that we know. Um, and that we can challenge. So take law for example and the cloak. One of the things that I see very clearly beneath the cloak is history. And history as politicized, not history as a set of events that simply happen and are recorded descriptively, but history as something that has produced the present. And if we are to undo the present, or if we are uncomfortable with the present, then we need to recognize that it is built on a history that needs um, to be targeted at the root. So um, a lot of my work around um, effective responses for violence against women and where do women get support services and who funds those support services and what works to prevent violence. There's a very um, serious conversation about who funds these strategies. So one of the effective ones that's globally peddled is called a one-stop center. And these are centers that integrate health, legal, and psychosocial support. And they're supposed to be very expensive to run and to manage. And so if you just do an analysis of who's funding these centers, and they are now a global phenomenon replicated across Southeast Asia, Africa, and this is what governments are writing down in their Millennium Development Goals and Sustainable Development Goals. But if you traced the, 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 the funding strategies for these models, and you begin to see that there's a whole history around who wants, who, who defines what the priority is, who defines what the solution is, and therefore funds it for their own priority, right? So when, when someone like me studies it in Kenya or South Africa, it's very possible to miss the geopolitics within which these um, priorities are being defined, but they are being defined in a geopolitical context. So I feel the, the solution, at least, at least, um, um, if we're going to hit at any meaningful solution, it has to be one that recognizes that even choices at national level or at community level are made within a geopolitical context that is systematically flawed. And there's a whole web of, 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 of um, systemic inequality that affects individual, seemingly individual choices that have been made at national level, at, at you know, institutional level. But they're all really connected. And until we hit it at that connection, then we are addressing symptoms rather than the the root of the problem. Yeah, I, th I think what Ruth said is uh, uh, very very important, and uh, the question of who defines uh, the narrative and uh, who defines the narrative also will go into answering: Are we going to really uh, solve the problem? Because as Ruth has said. As academics were left to cut around the issues because we have an agenda that has been defined already for us and we are fixated at meeting this agenda and uh, adopting evasive approaches, approaches to solving uh, some of these uh, real problems. So I think academics have been reduced to being purveyors of this hegemonic uh, ideologies and until we detach ourselves 
uh, from that until we start speaking to the lived realities uh, of the everyday life of the masses, I don't think we'll solve uh, any of the problems that uh, we are talking about uh, at the moment. And this will also lead us back to the problem that I was talking about, always playing catch-up with uh, societal transformations. And that, that is what is happening, we're always trying to play catch-up because we do not listen, we do not have our ears on the ground, we do not really articulate what the masses are saying and we do not define the law to speak to those realities. So until we start listening to uh, the factual realities that within our communities, within our neighborhoods and pervade them and communicate them in a manner that expresses what the society really, the feeling in the society that I don't think will really uh, solve uh, this problem. So it's about really looking at how to define the agenda, who defines the agenda, and are we really speaking to those problems that uh, we see within our societies. Um, I, I totally agree with the views of things you see as uh, being uh, cloaked uh, under the law. I, to me, and, and that's building a little bit on what you said on the global connectivity and the inequalities, to me the law, and this has been the obsession of, again, my, my research and my practice, the law really cloaks a lot of class and capital interests. And there are so many examples looking at, for example, one of, one of the things that, like, personally, breaks my heart is looking at the Iraq war, the invasion of Iraq, and the first laws that were um, put in place uh, by the newly appointed puppet Iraqi government had to do with, and these were laws, and they had to do with opening up uh, investments to internationals so that Americans can invest. It had to do with uh, privatizing the oil um, uh, industry so that Americans can make use of it and then other multinationals. And, and it's just heartbreaking that this is the kind of um, thing that, that is cloaked by the law and at the same time cloaked in the name of freedom and rights and openness and liberalism and so on. And we have so many examples and you know we're, we're witnessing Venezuela in the happening right now and we're going to see the same, the abs I, I wouldn't be surprised if they copy and paste the laws from Iraq to apply it to Venezuela to open up the economy and to serve specific capital interests. Uh, from Egypt, we had a few months after the revolution, we had a law that was passed and it was called, in 2011, it was called the Protection of Work. And the Protection of Work law was basically an anti-strike and anti-organizing in workplaces law. And to me, thinking about all, all the sorts of investment laws, tax laws, uh, property laws, uh, housing laws, all these legal frameworks that, and, and in a country that respects the rule of law, at least the population has a lot of respect for the rule of law, having all of these laws in place at the end of the day ends up cloaking a very class-based um, project. It's, it is an intentional project, I agree with you, but I also see it as class. It's imperialist in many ways, and we see that throughout the globalization of legal systems that have to do with investments and foreign investors in particular, and that is a big source of frustration that in many of the law uh, scholarly circles, this is not taking center stage. Just to pick up where Eva left off um, about uh, you know, financial legal regulation, I think, in, in various ways, um, and I completely agree about how law is used um, in subversive ways, uh, sometimes to oppress, sometimes to control, uh, sometimes both. Um, but I think there's also a huge capacity within that for, for us to harness and use those same legal frameworks uh, to the benefit of people. Um, I see in the news today that Egypt um, is increasing its basic minimum wage um, from, I don't know, 1,000 something to 2,000. Uh, South Africa, for the first time, has a basic um, minimum wage. Uh, th these are ways in which, as academics and practitioners, we can also use the law 
in ways to, to push a, a more progressive agenda. I mean, when we talk about populism and of course in the way it's defined um, politically as, as an entirely negative thing, but we also forget that advocacy campaigns are built around a kind of populism and that we can use them uh, to push the agenda in ways that, that we think need to happen. Um, for example, in South Africa, uh, the current debates on land, um, you know, the, the, the issue is about land dispossession during colonial times and during apartheid and needing to fix those problems. Uh, but the issue itself can be taken in any direction that we choose to take it. At the moment, it's being used entirely politically for electoral purposes to, to push for votes, really. So any party that says expropriation um, is a party that people um, are willing to vote for. Um, whereas it should be used to, to push progressive policies to, um, to reduce inequality, um, to redistribute um, wealth in the country. What it's likely to do, though, is to reinforce inequality and to concentrate ownership on men um, rather than, than any other vulnerable groups. So we're dealing with the same issue. It could go in any direction. Our job is, is to push it in whichever direction we think um, is progressive. But that's a, it's a, it's a difficult job um, as a lawyer because the law itself is always in flux. So even in this conversation, we're talking about we're talking about the law as separate from the issues. So the law is the static thing that we can direct and use and, and then whatever, but you know, in a sense is, is fixed, inflexible. Um, but the issues change, the time changes, the context changes, but actually the law itself um, is constantly in flux. In South Africa, we've had three very defined political periods within that many other periods, but for the, for the ease of simplicity, three particular political periods during apartheid, the 25 years post-apartheid, and maybe from this moment onwards, um, or the last few years at least. And you know, during apartheid, law was law was in a state of disorder, even while it was used itself as a tool of oppression. Um, and then we entered a constitutional democracy and for about 20 to 25 years lived in what many, I think, perceived as a state of legal stability. Uh, we always had the Constitution as a founding document. Uh, law couldn't be arbitrarily made. There were concerted efforts for public participation to include experts in the drafting of legislation. And now we're having a total pushback on even the idea of having a Constitution. So it's not, it's not easy for lawyers to be at the forefront um, of, of these issues. We, you know, in a way, we are always playing catch up um, in any given moment, and we just have to be better, I think, at not being, not seeing ourselves as pure academics, but being involved um, in NGOs or other civil society um, role players, so that we can actually infuse the academy um, with with, more, with a more social legal understanding. I'm hearing a couple of things come up right now, and it's it's frustrating me as a as a moderator of this discussion because I don't have an answer, and I'm wondering if the five of you can help me come up with an answer. I'm hearing some people say, "Law is a problem. Law invokes power. When the law exists, we see it as some even academics who don't wish to invoke power still see the law as something stable." something that we can contribute to, something that we can change, but still it's part of a, a process of power that unless we understand, as Smith said, the lived realities of the people who are most vulnerable in the society, then we can never do our jobs successfully, perhaps. But at the same time, I see a kind of uh, animation of all of you towards your this, this movement towards yes law is part of the problem but we're still stuck that the solution is also in the law so law becomes at once the problem that we are trying to solve through the law 
So should I take my bar license and burn it outside of the university and say forget it because law is part of the problem and it's part of the solution, which 20 years from now will be another problem that I myself created through this very solution that I thought should be legal? So I'm wondering if you can help me through your own context understand what is then left of the law? What does the law even mean if it is creating the very problems that we wish to solve through the very thing that may create future problems? Or, are, as one of you said earlier, is there a porousness uh, to the law where almost like we're holding sand in, in our hands and the sand can kind of filter through uh, and, and good things can, can be kept in our hands but the sand filters maybe the rocks we want to find that are good and the sand just filters through. How can we uh, understand, use, utilize, make sense of the law given the dynamics of power that are always embedded in it? It's a big question but I think I want to lead you there at this point in our discussion. One of the ways to approach the, the problem as, as intractable as it presents itself is to start the interrogation of who is making the law and for what purpose is the law being made. The, the global legal regime as we know it is structured around states. The international legal order is structured around states. But we know that non-state actors are on the rise and they are slowly but surely creating the agenda, setting the agenda, executing the agenda and also working with the grassroots to create maybe the illusion that that is also the bottom-up desire with regards to where the agenda should go. And so I think not to uh, hazard a solution, but to say that one of the ways we can begin to use the law properly is to understand who's building the law and for what purpose is that law being built. And being in Nigeria, and I have the quote-unquote luxury of being pessimistic because nothing seems to ever work. But understanding that the perpetration of that pessimism isn't going to solve anything. And so it's easy to always say the we have good laws on paper, the problem is implementation or the lack of political will. But it, it's not enough to stop at saying the problem is the lack of political will. What is it about every recurring regime that makes it incapable of having political will? And, and is it a case of incompetence? Is it a case of ineptitude? Is it a case of ignorance? Or is it simply a case of there is invested interest in things remaining the same. So I work, for example, in the right to health, and it, it would seem that health is apolitical in the sense that everybody should get access to good health. But we know that that isn't the case. So even health agenda, what is put as the public policy priority, is a function of international donors, is a function of where states put their, their funding priorities. And that is also a function of, on one hand, you need healthy citizens to push the machinery of capitalism, but at the same time, you also, at the risk of sounding pessimistic, you also don't want them to be too strong to be able to push you out of power. So you need to understand that even for things that seem political, there is an agenda. And I think the job for us is to conscript that power. And I, I, I was at a talk when somebody was talking about the Egyptian revolution and said the, the real problem with the revolution was that you simply unseated those who were there and then you were like, there was the illusion that power was there for now we're fine. And power was left vacant and people just grabbed the power. And realizing that there is power, there is potent power, and it's that power that drives the agenda, it's that power that drives where the law goes for its own ends. And so the question is, whose ends are we serving, even as researchers? Because, I mean, you need to feed, so you need to get grants. But who's giving you the grants? What's the 
the agenda behind the people that are giving you the grants? What, what research are you prioritizing in your own work? And so even in our own work, it, it replicates itself. So I, I don't think that necessarily is an answer, but I think it's an invitation to rethink the way we conceive of the law and who's building the law with regards to your question. Yeah, I, I just want to agree with Wami. So in terms of who's conceiving the law, and what, what do we define as the law? You know, these are age-old conversations again about how, you know, there's a hierarchy of laws from law school they teach us, you know, um, customary law at the bottom and then, you know, there's this hierarchy. And and so for, for me, the honest conversation I keep having with myself is um, how, how am I challenging myself to, to see the law um, through the broad sense of reality, of, of the lived realities of people? So again, in criminal law, we just sort of idolize the criminal justice system um, for, for, for solving crime and, and for, for providing redress to victims of, of sexual violence, which is my work, but we know that that doesn't work. But even though we know that doesn't work, we still look at the other alternatives as alternatives. We call them alternative. We call, yesterday there was a fantastic panel on the other law. It is still the other law. And we, we call it alternative other law, and then there is the real law, which is essentially the Western uh, Anglo-Saxon way of resolving disputes, and then there is the African problematic informal other. And that's just ridiculous that this is still the way that we think about the law. And the honest conversation to have is, we can't think about the law like this. If it's, it's not to say informal justice systems are perfect, but if we're going to invest a lot of time and money and research and capacity in making these formal institutions work, the same could be, could be done for informal, alternative, other. So for me, it's just an attitude question of, um, we still need to unlearn a lot of what we think we know about what the law is, and versus what really people's life, because people organize outside of the law all the time, and it works for them. So it's catching up to that reality. Um, and then again, the, about Wami saying, the hand that feeds you, because now the hand that feeds you really does own you, and by owning you, it sets the agenda for you. And now I'm now in a space where I can take on consultancies, and these are research projects and grants that will feed into um, legal reform processes, law reform processes, and policy reform processes. And so, what questions are we asking? Who's funding the questions that we're asking? What's important to ask, and why? So it's taking responsibility as we navigate those corridors of power ourselves now to say. Are we bold enough to say no to certain kinds of money, you know, uh, because we know we, yeah, so it's just also a, a personal reflection process of how am I being complicit and sort of just reproducing what we know doesn't work. Yeah, for me, I also agree with uh, what Wami and both have uh, talked about, and uh, uh, everybody, everybody else, though. Requiring us to reevaluate ourselves and to stop being fixed on our ways uh, because it's not working, it hasn't worked. And also to take cognizance of the fact that we do not live in static moments and the law is not static. Uh, we need to be alive of the changes within our societies, of these moments, these defining moments that we're talking about here, and drive on the moment to build a more progressive. Uh, agenda, uh, a more progressive agenda that defines the moment. We need to now seize the moment and define uh, uh, the moment. And while doing this, we need to be propelled by uh, voices from the ground, because that is the only way that we are going to root our narratives uh, to fix or to, 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 to be in line with the lived uh, realities. And I think that is a task that each one of us here has to define the moment based or propelled by voices uh, from the ground. I, I don't think I'm ready to say that uh, we should abandon the law. And I, I think one day I might be, but I need to have an alternative manifesto of how to go forward without the law, like if we go post-law. Um, 
but considering that I'm still in the place where I believe we can do something through the law, it's very it's a very unfair system, but we need to do something through it. Um, I, I want to articulate that it's not just the law because it's not in vacuum. We need to think about the institutions that produce the law, as you said, but also the institutions that protect the law. Um, and obviously thinking of court systems, but also thinking about parliaments, thinking about how, what's the relationship between the rise of populism in executives and the, uh, these judicial institutions. So I think investing in, in these institutions that can create some sort of an attempt to make equal access to law and uh, legislating new legislations uh, that are representative of the populations that speak to the realities on the ground. I think this is a fight that we need to, to be having beyond just fighting for the content of one law at a time. Uh, and that is a big challenge, particularly in, in populist times. <clears throat> to answer your question, Mark, um, you know, it, it doesn't concern me so much that law is both the problem and the solution. I take that for granted. Um, that's the job, I think, that we all signed up for as lawyers. We chose to address social issues through the law. Other people chose to address those same issues through social work or uh, some type of humanities or through the medical profession, whatever. We, we chose the law, so, so the job is always going to be um, <clears throat> coming up with a solution for today that 10 years' time won't work anymore. Um, I once asked one of our deputy national directors of public prosecutions why they didn't write in a proper independence clause into the into the national prosecuting authority in the constitution, and he, he was part of drafting it. And his response was, at the time, our concern wasn't the independence of the institution, but who would influence who that director would be. That fight has now changed. That's always going to happen. So we always, 10 years, 5 years, 20 years, 100 years, going to look back and say, why on earth did we do that? It makes no sense now. But it was a different fight that was had then. I'm quite comfortable with that. Um, that's the job. As a, as a procedural lawyer, um, I always ask myself, not how can I fix the world, but how can one set of procedures or one set of legal rules impact in one area, whether it's mitigating harm to complainants in sexual offenses, or whether it's um, challenging the way the state um, has decided to to regulate protests. Um, that's my job as a lawyer, and, and I'm, I'm fine with that. I think that's, that's what we all chose to do. Before we close, let me ask you one final question, and I'd like all of you to try and answer it in just one or two sentences, and that is, what do you see from the research you've done through your PhDs over the last few years, now some of you almost finishing your PhDs, um, and entering this kind of brave new world order that we're in, or maybe not so new uh, world order. What do you see as a space for this project that all of us are engaged in called Law and Society in Africa, or Law and Society in Africa and the Middle East? What do you see as a space for this kind of uh, intellectual endeavor? Is there a space for it? And if so, what kind of space? Another way to ask that question is, what do you see as the key research uh, agendas or key research priorities? For those of us coming from many different countries in Africa and the Middle East who care about the interaction between law and society, not just what the law says, but what the law does, what should we be thinking about based on your expertise? I'll start with Ruth, and then we'll just go across. Okay, for me, it would be how, how, can, how can Africa sustain itself better? Because once we figure out sustainability, I feel we will, that's this power in sustainability. When you know you can define the agenda in and of yourself because you can sustain yourself. So whether that's a research project, whether that's an implementation project as a practitioner, how are you self-sustaining yourself? And how can we better sustain the projects we have? I think for me, the, the underlying question is, who is Africa working for? 
when I, I mean, when you say Africa, when in a lot of conferences you hear expressions like Africa rising and all of that. Who is it rising for? When it has risen, who's who's going to benefit from its rising? So I think for me that is where the project should go to, and you know, clamor for you know entrepreneurship and all of that. You can't entrepreneur yourself out of a bad system. You can't entrepreneur yourself out of bad roads without electricity. So when you say Africa is rising and it's working, who is it working for? I think that's the real job. When you say law and society, it's not law for society or law in society. Law and society. I think understanding that those two work together and should speak to each other is where the direction of the law or our research going forward should, should go to. So as I started out saying, these are not new issues, but that that because of that, we can notice warning signs. And so I think our research priorities must be on picking up on those warning signs that we've seen in our different contexts. Um, so whether it's debates about constitutional law and you know whether things like constitutions are helpful, um, rights discourses, which, which at the moment is under a lot of critique, but, but basically any, any kind of discourse that, that deals with preventing harm, whether that's through individual rights, communal rights, or any other way, we want to do that. Um, inequality and, and reducing class dis distinctions or economic oppression, as one said, that's the real cause, and I agree with him about the rise in populism, people feeling vulnerable within their own space and they're needing to push back and the only way you do that is by othering others. So so anything that, that relates to uh, xenophobia um, or related issues that, that deals with that. And then I think most importantly, um, targeting issues that address um, transparency and accountability, whether that's at an institutional level, a state level, an individual level, because it's only through transparency and accountability that we can push back on the hegemonic power that institutions and states are able to harness in authoritarian states. And if we write those in at the beginning and constantly push for uh, for accountability, accountability, um, that's where I say I think all of our work in different ways um, should be addressing that. I think I'll, I'll start by acknowledging the fact that uh, we are all involved in uh, very diverse areas on how the law impacts on the society, what Shelly was talking about, law in the society. And I can't offer a solution to each and every of our, the different work that each, one, uh, each one of us here does. But I think the question that we need to ask ourselves in our respective spaces is how do we participate in the everyday forms of resistance within our very specialized and our respective spaces? And that's the only way that the law in our different areas will work for the society. I think building on what uh, Smith says, and similarly, I think everyone has their own way of thinking about the law and their research agendas. But to me, it's also thinking about how to mobilize the law and legal institutions to support uh, and, and for the interest of struggles on the ground. That's one key thing that I think we, even though I believe we need to look at big issues, but thinking about the everyday struggles is will never stop being a priority to me at least. Um, but also I think it's really important at this time to think about decolonizing our laws and I don't mean it in the sense of traditional versus Western, uh, do we have Anglo-Saxon laws and th this is not the way I mean it, but I think uh, de-linking de it from colonial powers, from imperial interests, from particularly economic uh, interests that are basically answering to your point of uh, who is Africa rising for? Just making sure that when the law makes Africa rise, it's for all of us and not for someone else. Thank you. Okay, let me take the last 30 seconds and just try and summarize some of the things that I heard in this last question. Uh, for all of us who are thinking about this relationship, this is not a conference in law, this is a conference in law and society. And we have five different provocations coming to us, which evidences for us the real interdisciplinarity of the law and society field. 
we have Ruth thinking about, if you care about law and society, the question you should be asking is, how can you sustain yourself? We have Lamy asking a different kind of question, but the broader question of how or what is Africa or the Middle East working for? If Africa or the Middle East are rising, who are they rising for? Who benefits? Who doesn't benefit? And how to think about pessimism in that process. We have Jamila offering a different piece of advice around what are the warning signs? If you are a lawyer who thinks about the law in an interdisciplinary way, how do you pick up on the warning signs in different contexts? And for her, the important warning signs are transparency, or the lack of transparency, accountability, the lack of accountability. What are the warning signs that you see in your particular context? These are the things that Jamila might encourage you to write about in your own research agenda. We have Smith saying, once again, how do we think about the most vulnerable people in a society, everyday forms of resistance, and how can we, as law and society scholars, participate in that project through our writing, through our research, through our teaching. And finally, we have Heba saying, how can we, uh, if we are to pursue a, a research agenda for law and society, how can we decolonize this research agenda, which has primar primarily come from places in North America, from places in Europe, places with power, how can we reclaim those sources of power to decolonize both colonial and post-colonial forms of power? This is a broad set of questions. These aren't the only questions. If we had five different people on the panel, this panel would have looked very different. So these are five perspectives. I hope that during the lunch and during the breaks we have, uh, and during the other sessions, people pick up on these themes of warning signs and power and uh, how to explain uh, what's, what's rising and what isn't rising and sustainability and everyday resistance. So please thank me in joining our five panelists and I look forward to the rest of the session.